Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Luke chapter 18 in your Bibles. While you're turning there, uh, I am not the face you were expecting to see preaching, are you? Uh, Because last week I shared with you that Pastor Ethan was going to be preaching today. Um, And... uh, for those who don't know, um, his great uncle passed away, which is actually Jack Purvis's brother, um, and he is officiating the memorial tomorrow morning. It's a graveside service for the family. Um, so Ethan and I talked through and determined that it would be better for his sanity and uh, for his life that uh, he preach next Sunday. So Lord willing, he will be preaching next Sunday. Uh, so today, honestly, is just coming from a personal devotion time that I have with the Lord this week. Because uh, I found out, I think, on Tuesday. I think Tuesday we decided. Um, so the last four days, God's really kind of invested in my heart through the, uh, the book of Luke. I've been reading through Luke uh, since the beginning of the year, uh, slowly but surely. Um, as you guys know, I, I like to take my time in text. So Luke chapter 18 is where I've been for a while. And uh, I will tell you that this message is a bit of a tougher word. So this may cut a little deep, and I want to be careful how we do that. I don't want to come with a butcher knife. I want to come with a scalpel because God's word is that delicate and kind to us. So every so often in life, right, if you're like me, if we're on this path of life together towards Christ-likeness and we're all filled with the Spirit, there should be times in our lives where we should be able to kind of pause and assess where we've been and how faithful God has been to us in bringing out of those, bringing us out of those things. So for example, like at certain times in my life, I can look back on the last several years and see the things that God has sanctified about me or has changed about me and transformed me more to look a little bit like Jesus. So when I was 22 years old, right, I could look back on when I was 17. Again, I'm only 31 years old, so I don't have a lot of life to work with, okay? So when I was 17 years old, I, would, I, I can look back and man, man, I was a moron. Like all the things that I was involved in, the struggles and sin habits that I had developed, like I can look back and say, man, God, you have been so good to me. And I was at 22. When I was at 26, 27 years old, I could look back on when I was 22. And I was just starting to pastor my first church. Man, I was a moron then. And I've learned a lot and God has been so gracious to me and faithful and sanctifying me and making me look a little bit more like Jesus along the way. And even now at 31 years old, I can look back on when I was 27. Man, I was an idiot. I had so many things struggling with, so many habits, so many problems, and God has brought me out of those things, so many mindsets that he's healed me from. And I can just say, praise God for his faithfulness towards me. These weren't works that I did. They were things that he did, he accomplished in my life. And, and based on that fact alone, and based, and not just alone, but even if we were to go to God's word, and, and we could all rightly assume, couldn't you rightly assume that it, at, when I'm 40, when I'm 50, when I'm 60 and 70 and 80, I should be in my life with Christ as I'm walking with him, should be able to look back on my life and be like, man, God, you've brought me out of so much. Is it right to assume that according to scripture? Have we experienced that? Right? So, Scripture describes that element or, or, or faith itself as, a, as organic, right? Organic meaning there's something that it, that's, that's natural, that it grows, it, it builds, it matures, it develops. Like we're organic beings, right? In a sense. So, let me just say this. Let's say, 
Let's say I, I got to 70. Somehow I made it to 70 years old. And I looked back on the me that is 31 now. Right? I looked back on the 31 me. And at 70 years old, I still had the exact same sin habits, broken mindsets, poor behavior patterns, and sin struggles and misbeliefs that I had when I was 31, if I still had them when I was at 70, wouldn't you say there was, there's something that happened, something wrong with my faith? Something broken about it? Something dangerously odd about it? That should not be the case, in fact. So it, it, it'd almost be like, let's say we were at the park yesterday with my wife and my kids, and we dressed them up too, too cold. We didn't even account for this. They were freezing. So we were there for a few minutes. Let's say, let's say for example, we were at the park and, and we were at the playground and, and this, this, uh, this mom of a baby was holding, she was holding her baby, sitting on, the, sitting on the little bench thing next to the park, watching all the kids play. And she was just holding her little baby. She was a bit older, you could tell. And, 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 and the baby looked a little bit odd. And, and let's say, for example, you know, you just want to be nice. You say, oh, that's a cute baby. How old is he? Oh, thank you. He's 47 years old. Wouldn't, there's something wrong with that, right? Wouldn't you look at, man, your son has a condition. You know that, right? 47-year-old babies don't exist or else they got problems. And yet we as Christians, we as Christians can carry this identity as Christians. We can say that we're born-again believers and yet we're 57-year-old babies where we, we've, we've not done any growing at all. We've carried Christianity for so long. We've told ourselves that we've had this faith, and yet we still have the same immaturities and sin habits. We still use the same solutions to cope with our pain and our problems. We still celebrate the same wicked things. We still use the same crude and foul language because it really is just a, a revelation of what's in our heart. The same things that we did 10, 20, 30 years ago. There's, there's something odd about that, right? I mean, no matter how old we are in the Christian life, if you and I cannot see any change in our character, in our beliefs, in our values, in our desires, in our behavior patterns over time that are in the same direction towards Christ Jesus, then I have to say this because, because I love you deeply more than you can know. There's something dangerously wrong with your faith. And yet, it's the state of so many Christians today, 57-year-old babies. We say we've walked with Christ for 57 years, and not a single thing has changed about us. Is that faith? Is that faith? And, and, and to be honest, I'm not going to answer that for us this morning. The Christian faith has to be what God has objectively set the standard as in his word by the word himself, Christ Jesus. Amen? Right? So what is the standard of faith? Right? What is the description of faith or the objective standard of faith that, that God sets in his word that you and I need to gather around and run after and encourage one another in? What is that standard of faith? And so this morning, uh, the, the question that we're hoping to answer is that. What is the faith? And this sermon is, is going to be called, This is the Faith. This is the Faith. Now, um, 
so I, I found out that I'm a little bit more of a geek than I realized this morning. Um, because, uh, are you into Star Wars at all? Okay, so The Mandalorian just came out, right? That's, that's Disney's latest contribution to the Star Wars saga. I grew up right when all of that was going on, and it, it was good and everything. Um, but The Mandalorian came out, right? And, and, and I've watched it, and it, it was so good because I loved so much about it, so many values and things. Um, but, but the main character is a Mandalorian, right? And he's part of this religious group, is what we'll call them, who ascribe to or have created themselves to what's called the Mandalorian Way. Golly, I'm geeking out. Okay. This, this way, the way of the Mandalore is like this shared value system. They value the same things. They are committed to one another in a moral standard of living, right? This is how we're going to live. And in order to preserve that, in order to keep one another encouraged, that and, uh, encouraged in that and acknowledging that that's what's guiding them, they would often look to each other and say, this is the way. This is the way, right? Well, today, I, I, I want us to covenant around this shared way of living, the shared idea of faith, and encouraging one another to strive towards it together in this idea of this is the faith. So I've got some instruction for you. Anytime that I say, this is the faith, I want you to repeat it back to me. So let's practice. This is the faith. This is the faith. Yes, you're acknowledging that we agree. This is the faith. Well done. You're picking it up. So anytime you hear that, I want you to repeat it, okay? Luke 18 is where we're going to be. So let's, let's, let, me, let me give some context real quick. Jesus, at the beginning of Luke 18, talks, uh, tells us this parable about this persistent widow going before a wicked judge. And it's ultimately just to point out that God is a faithful, loving father who delights to give good things to his children. So be persistent in your pursuit of God in that sense. But at the end of that parable, Jesus asked an incredibly important question. He asked this, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth? Will he find the faith on the earth? Now, your Bibles probably don't include the words the in front of faith and earth. Uh, I don't know why they don't, because they're in the Greek, right? And what happens then is that this, it, it makes faith the faith. It makes something specific and objective. It's not arbitrary. It's not a characteristic. It's not relative. It is the faith. It's a definite standard that Jesus is looking for. Are you tracking with me so far that he is looking for the faith? And will he find it in us when he returns? Now, our hope is obviously yes, but what does it look like? But what does the faith Look like, what is the faith? What is the standard? Well, what's really cool is Jesus has an answer. Luke constructs that answer using Jesus' life, using three stories that follow. What's crazy is the next three passages immediately following this question describe exactly what Jesus means by the faith. It's, it's incredible. If you, if you read commentaries and scholars, they'll, they'll agree. This is, this is what D Luke is constructing this out to be. That he's answering the question, what is the faith in these three stories? We've got three. The Pharisee and the tax collector, the children coming to Jesus, and then the rich young ruler. So we cannot walk through these passages. We're going to have to beeline it through, and we're going to have to run right through all of these. And, 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 and hopefully that we're, we're, we're going to pull some core truths out of these things so that we can understand what the faith is, right? 
Now, to be clear, this is not an exhaustive list, meaning there's more to our understanding of what the faith is, but these are of vital importance. So, let's start off with verse 9. Remember, he just asked the question, will he find the faith on the earth? Verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Ooh, what a story. Two men went up, to see the, went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. I'm going to try to impersonate. Oh, God, I thank you. I'm not going to do it anymore. That I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers. Listen to that. I thank you that I'm not like other people that I'm not greedy, that I'm not unrighteous, that I'm not adulterer, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. In other words, he's thinking, God, wow, you're lucky to have me. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me. A sinner. I tell you, this one, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, there's the first story, and the first mark of the faith is this contrite humility. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. Contrite humility. So most of us have a, a pretty solid understanding of humility, right? It's a kind of a lowliness of self, not self, uh, low self-esteem, but just we're not thinking about ourselves as much. It's not about us. Life's not about us, right? So that's humility. But contrition, on the other hand, is a little bit more difficult. It's a bit rarer these days. So to, to try to nail this down, uh, the, the International Bible Encyclopedia defines it as this. A contrite heart is one in which the natural pride and self-sufficiency have been completely humbled by the consciousness of guilt. Because contrite humility doesn't offer excuses for our sin. We don't, we don't shift the blame to other people. Contrite humility actually fully agrees with God about how wicked we can be, how, about how wicked we are. And, and, then, and then we throw ourselves onto the mercy of God alone, and there we find full forgiveness for all of our transgressions. So contrite humility, it never takes this forgiveness for granted. It's always in this dependence upon God's forgiveness. It still grieves over sin, right? It grieves over what our sin cost the Son of God. Contrite humility seeks to repent and not repeat sin. Now, some of us, uh, some of us, this is not compatible with our modern day, oh, we've got to be jibby and happy all the time, right? We've got rainbows and unicorns in life, everything's good. No, when we're contrite, we go before the Lord and we say, God, we're not, we're not worthy and we're amazed that you would even let us in. Thank you. For some of us, this, this might seem like an Old Testament thing. Like, we're in the gospel now, right? We should, we, should, we should be always joyful forevermore, never have any sense of contrition again. If that's the case, then God must have a, 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 a mind that changes because he values contrition all throughout the Bible. 
Take a look at, at Isaiah 66. This is the one to whom I will look. This is God speaking. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is the one he looks to. What about Isaiah 57? Verse 15, it says this. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God himself humbles himself to be with we who are contrite, who are ever acknowledging our own guilt, our own depravity, and our need for a savior. Guys, isn't, isn't technically this what Jesus says when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted? Guys, that mourning, that sorrow there, isn't just simply looking out at the world and, and being distressed by all the chaos, oppression, and, 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 and suffering. No, it's actually a, a mourning that stems from, as well, a, a sense of guilt, a sense of my personal sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So, I mean, when's the last time you went before God beating your chest. Where you've been so grieved by your own sin that you, that you, you couldn't even raise your eyes to heaven. You, you just went before him and said, God, have mercy, mercy on me. I had, I had this burst of anger towards my children and, and it's unbecoming of Christ. And I'm sorry. Or God, forgive me, I've been so blinded by arrogance, I made such poor decisions at work. Or God, I've, I've, been, I've been using my spouse for my own gain. I'm so sorry. This is the faith. This is the faith. It worked. Humbling ourselves before the Lord in contrition over our sin. We don't graduate out of that. We forever stay in this. So that's the first story. We've got two more to go. Let's move on to the second one where Jesus is blessing the children. Verse 15 in Luke 18. People were bringing infants to Jesus so he might touch them, but when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Jesus, however, invited the children. Let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Here's the second mark of the faith. Childlike dependence. Can we say that together? One, two, three. Childlike dependence. Jesus says the requirement for entrance into God's kingdom, in other words, saving faith, the requirement of it is to simply receive God's kingdom like a child. Now, wait a minute, Scott. Weren't you talking about 57-year-old babies earlier? I know. Jesus has his own thing. He's doing something really better. Why a child? Why does he lift up the example of a child? I thought we were supposed to grow up. Now, to be clear... You and I got to make sure we understand there's a massive difference between childlike and childish. You know that word ish? Ugh. 
It's, it's immaturity. We're not talking about immaturity here. To be childlike is looking at the quality of a child and, and saying, what, what is best about that? What, what example does a child set that I ought to follow? What characteristics, what attitudes, what, what abilities do children possess that, that qualify them as the picture for how we should faithfully receive the kingdom of God? And, and honestly, uh, the, the easiest, least arguable, meaning that there's not really much contestation about it, it's, it's pretty solid across the board, is dependence. Is full dependence. That's the clearest answer, right? So uh, let me try to explain. Children, wouldn't you agree? Children are completely and utterly dependent on their parents for absolutely everything they have and everything they need, right? That's why they don't have a care in the world unless their parents fail. Guys, my children have a bedroom. I've got one bedroom for my daughters and one for my son. My son is sleeping in a queen bed now. At two, he's not even three yet. She's looking at me like, why'd you bring that up? Because we spoil our son. That was our bed we had anyways. So, so, is, did he earn that bed? Did he work hard for that bed? Was it his bed and he claimed it and everything? No, no, no. We decided, here you go. You can have it. Hey, girls, here's a bedroom. It's yours. Did they, did they work hard for that? No, they simply received it because they're dependent on us for their needs, for everything that they need in life, their food, their clothing, their shelter. Their, their warmth, so much more. The relationship, the things that we require in life, children are so desperately dependent on their parents for. And if they don't have a parent to fight for them, then you might just lose that life. Childlike dependence in faith means that you and I are completely convinced that absolutely everything that we need for every part of our life in this world and every part of our life as Christians, everything we need comes from God himself. Everything to the Christian life comes from God. And a childlike dependence says, I agree with that and I will always have that mindset. And everything that I do lives and operates in that worldview. We fully rely on God for everything. Did you know that's what sweet, sweet frog means? You know that, that ice cream store thing? Sweet frog, F-R-O-G, means fully rely on God. They did that on purpose. Who would have known they would have made it into a sermon? Guys, you and I have to believe that we couldn't even go to the grocery store apart from the grace of God. Apart from the grace that comes from our master's hand. And when crumbs fall from his table, we receive them with joy. And we wonder at it. So I've just got to ask, have you lost this? Have you lost the childlikeness of your faith that fully depends on God? Do you feel like God owes you? That you've been good enough, that you've attended church enough, that you've stayed away from this sin long enough, that God owes you? Or is every good thing in your life, a gift from the Father's hand.
Here we go. This is the faith. Childlike dependence on God for everything good and necessary. Now let's get to the third story. Third story. The rich young ruler. Verse 18. And we're going to go all the way to verse 25. A ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Talk about a really important question for us to ask. Jesus' response, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. (laughs) I have kept all these from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told them, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Guys, here's the third mark of the faith, and I'll tell you, this one probably costs the most. Christ following, abandon. Can we say that together? One, two, three. Christ following, abandon. Guys, the rich young ruler was just consumed with idolatry, and he had no clue. He was completely blind to it. Right? He went before Jesus and said, I've kept uh, all the commandments, right? The, and and he, Jesus lists off the five that, and how we relate to one another as human beings. But he didn't know that the number one commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not, bear, you shall not create for yourself any idols. This guy had fashioned his own idols. He is idol, idolizing money, wealth, possessions. And Jesus just simply points it out. He points it out and tells him, hey, abandon your idolatry and follow me. Because we know what else scripture says, you cannot serve both God and money. Guys, this ruler, this man depended so much on his wealth that he had totally forgotten about God. He depended on his wealth more than God and when, when Jesus simply kindly, mercifully reveals that in him, it also came with the invitation, hey, forsake your idolatry and your dependence on that treasure. Come, follow me. I'll show you life. As Joseph said so well last week, come find treasure and joy in pursuit of me, in imitating me, in following me. So we could, we could talk a lot about this, but I just want to get to the point. When we place our faith in Jesus, you and I don't get to hold on to anything that he tells us to let go. When we say, I follow Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian. When we really say that, if we're trying to adhere to the objective standard of what Jesus says the faith really is, if we're going to do that, then you and I can't hold on to anything that Jesus says you've got to abandon, right? 
We don't, we, don't, we don't get to give him some of our lives and then reserve the rest of it for ourselves. Again, like Joseph said last week, think about it. Look at, look at Peter, Andrew, James, and John, four of Jesus' disciples, right? They were fishermen. How did they first meet Jesus? Well, apparently, according to the Gospel of Mark, the, all, all four of them, they were working, in two different instances, they were working, they were catching fish, they were fishermen, and they, they, were, they, they were working their livelihoods, they were providing for their families. And here comes Jesus, and he looks at them and says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And what was their response? Hold on, Jesus, I gotta, I gotta make sure my family's cared for. Hold on, I can't just leave my stuff here. No, they dropped their nets. Scripture actually indicates that they, they left behind their nets. One of them left behind their dad, right? The two, actually, two of them, the brothers, they left behind their dad sitting in the boat. They left their boats, and they said, no, we're gonna, we're gonna go. We're, we're abandoning this. Christ has called us to come. They dropped their nets. They left their livelihoods in pursuit of Christ. Look at Matthew, right? The, the, Matthew, the, the, the tax collector, right? One of the society's rejects. A traitor to Israel. Jesus calls him to come. And Matthew leaves behind his livelihood, his lucrative job as a tax collector. Guys, this dude was filthy rich and he left it all. The security that Rome provided him was insane. And yet he said, nope, I'm done with that. I want Jesus, because he's bid me come. Placing our faith in Jesus means that what Jesus points out as an idol, we burn it. What Jesus commands us, we obey it. What Jesus exposes within us as sinful, we cut it off. What Jesus says is worth celebrating, we party over. What Jesus values, we value. What he hates, we hate. What he loves, we love. What he does, we do. When he says jump, we don't ask, we jump, right? When he says leave, we leave. When he says go, we go. When he says stay here, we stay here. When he says serve, we serve. When he says give, we give without abandon. We abandon anything and everything that gets in the way of our obedience to our Savior and Lord. That's the faith. There you go. So I have to ask, it may not have been as dramatic as leaving behind your livelihoods, but when's the last time you dropped your nets in pursuit of something Christ has asked you to do? When? when like when's the last time you abandoned something material, something that is somewhat worldly pleasurable, right? And said, no, I'm, I'm done with that. I don't want that anymore. I want the joy that Christ has before me. I want my treasure in heaven. That's not good enough. I want that. When? 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 I mean, those are conscious choices every day, brothers and sisters. That's not just this one-time life-changing decision. That's everyday decisions. This is the faith. Say it like you mean it. This is the faith. Guys, this is counting everything as rubbish, everything as garbage for the surpassing worth of knowing and following Christ Jesus our Lord, Philippians 3. These are the three marks of the faith according to this part of the Gospel of Luke. Three heavy marks, contrite humility, which acknowledges our sinfulness, right, and our lowliness, 
Childlike dependence means I'm going to look to Christ and look to God to provide everything that I need, including my salvation from my sin. And then Christ following abandon. I'm not just going to go about my life. No, I'm going to align myself with Christ, my Savior and Lord. Contrite humility, childlike dependence, and Christ following abandon. Now, if you're like me, a.k.a. if you're a human being and have a heart, that seems like a pretty tall order. That's like trying to go into Waffle House and ordering a filet mignon. I just ain't going to get it there. Or whatever they try to provide, it's just ugh. Like, so, so Jesus is saying that the faith that he's looking for right here, the way Luke has constructed it, we have to have grief over every sin and, and, and have a brokenheartedness over our own depravity within us. We have to have full dependence on God for absolutely everything that we need in life. And we have to have a, a resolve to abandon anything that hinders our pursuit of Christ and Christ's likeness. That's a lot. Seems like a lot, isn't it a lot? It, it's a lot. I think you and I, we can look at that and be like, yeah, oh, those things, oh, those are great. I love, there's beauty behind those things. Oh, but they're so hard. I think if I can agree, we're probably all there, right? We, we see those things and we're like, man, those are awesome and I celebrate those things. God, God, you are good to encourage those things in us, but I don't think I'll ever see those things within me in fullness. I think it's too unlikely that we'll ever see those marks on ourselves. I mean, this kind of faith seems almost impossible, right? Like, like it's almost just too high to reach. If this is what he describes as a faith, man, I can't reach that. Do you think you're the only one who thought that? No, I hope not, because everybody who was listening to Jesus thought the exact same thing. That's a tall order, Jesus. Look at verse 26. Remember, he just gave all of this out. Verse 26, those who heard this asked, then who can be saved? Right? They thought, well, that's impossible. That kind of faith? Oh, man, I can't do that. Who can be saved? Who can enter into the kingdom of God? I mean, it, it really seems impossible for us to ever have this level of faith, to ever meet this kind of standard. So what do we do? Well, I think, I think we've got a few options. One option is just to constantly live in a state of despair. It's too lofty, we can't ever reach that. We're just constantly discouraged, invalidating everything in life, right? We discourage ourselves thinking, I, I won't ever reach that kind of faith. That's just too far ahead of me. I won't ever, it's, not, it's just not gonna happen. And then we just become dissatisfyingly content with the level of faith we're at right now. And we accept it. That's one option. Does that sound fun? Does that sound like a life of joy? Mm -mm. Another option, if the standard is high, why don't we just, like, okay, we're gonna bring the standard right there. That's easier, I can reach that. Done. We lower the standard of the faith. Right? We, we, make, we can make faith to be much less than what Jesus describes it to be. 
We, we can make faith simply a cultural thing. Oh, let's do that. Let's make it American. <gasps> Sorry, kind of political. Or how about whenever we evangelize, we only teach the part that says, I get to be in heaven for the rest of eternity. If you just believe Jesus, you can get that. And then we turn the gospel into some sort of prosperity gospel. We export it overseas, and everybody thinks that their, their pigs are dying, and, and, and those who are, are poor and suffering, they just don't have enough faith. We, we, we can lower the standard and just say, well, no, the way you are now, God loves you and accepts you, right? No, God loves Christ, and he accepts Christ in you. So we could just lower the standard, and then you know what that means? Anytime we saw examples, or see examples, or hear of examples of exemplary faith, we invalidate them. So when we look at people, oh man, oh geez, William Carey, missionary to Asia, or what about Charles Spurgeon, oh, Prince of Peachers, what about Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, William Carey, uh, Jim Elliott, John Wesley, all these guys, we can look at them, if we've lowered the standard, oh, no, they had special grace, they were special. That's not how everybody's supposed to be. No. No, they're, they're just special people. With special grace, we're going to keep our low standards here. This is where we're comfortable. Can we lower the standard that Jesus set? No. We cannot because we are not the Lord. We are not God. So you and I, we, we can't stay in a state of despair. We cannot compromise the gospel. We can't lower the standard of the faith. But yet we know that Contrite, humble, childlike, dependent, Christ-following, idol-abandoning faith is the faith that Jesus is seeking. So do we despair? No. Do we lower the standard? No. What do we do? We believe. Believe what? Believe what? We believe what Jesus' response was to them who thought, oh, who can be saved? Look at what his response is. Verse 27. Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Right? So in, in other words, this standard of faith that you and I, oh, we just can't even reach it. It's too high. It's too far above. It's not going to come about in your strength. It's not going to come about in your power or your wisdom or in the latest technology that comes out today that can instantly make you Christ-like. No, 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 no. The truth is God makes faith possible. God makes the faith possible. God makes this standard of faith possible in you. Isn't that, isn't that what it means when we say we fully rely on God? So, like, you, you know those moments in the NFL game, like, you're, you're watching the shows and, and they're paused for a commercial and, and the announcer comes over the screen. This broadcast has been brought to you by these sponsors. <laughs> this faith brought to you by our God. Guys, time and time again, we see in Scripture over and over again, psalmists and poets and wisdom literature saying, is anything too hard for the Lord? No. no. Is anything too difficult for our God? That's, that's, that's the idea. Nothing is impossible with God. That's what Jesus says. So, so when God says in Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will bring it unto completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Will you do what Romans 4.21 says, and will you, will you be fully convinced that what God has promised, he will also do? Yes. 
Not only is he able to do it, but he is doing it. All right, guys, God can accomplish this level of faith in us. We cannot ourselves. So you and I, with contrite humility, with childlike dependence and Christ's following abandon, rely on God to do the work in us. Guys, isn't, isn't that kind of the, the, the position of the gospel? Isn't that basically what the message of the gospel ultimately is? Right? We can't save ourselves. God has to. We can't save ourselves. Jesus can. Guys, you, you, do you think we graduate from that in the Christian life? That we, that we say, oh, this, the, yeah, that's nice. I'll, I'll, I've got it now. Oh, I'm all by myself. We're good. I've got this. I've got this whole Christ. You don't, you don't, just stay there. We're good. I don't need that. No. We never graduate from the idea of what the gospel says. Gospel telling we can't save ourselves. We're not strong enough to. We're not good enough to. But Jesus can. And that is the mantra of every single part of the Christian faith. I can't make this faith possible within me. God can. Guys, we can't live independently of God and self-sufficiency. When we talk about growing up, we often attribute that to how a child grows up, and we're trying to encourage them and press them on and teach them how to be, what? Self-sufficient and independent so that they can go off and do life on their own. That is not the Christian faith. That is not what growing up in Christ means. In fact, it's the opposite. We lose our self-sufficiency. We lose our ability to do anything in and of ourselves, and we become more and more convinced that I am fully dependent on God for everything. That is what growing up means in the faith. We desperately need God for every breath, and we need God to build our faith. If this is what he's looking for, he's got to do it in us, and he promises he will. Only God can bring about a contrite humility, a childlike dependency, and a Christ-following abandon that puts aside every idol and says, I want Jesus more. So doesn't Philippians 4.13 then takes a different turn? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you realize that's actually a, a mantra of weakness? That's not a mantra of strength. It's saying, I can't do it at all. Christ is the one who's doing it in me. This faith, when we look at these examples, we don't despair. We don't lower the standard. We believe, God, you can do that in me. Would you? So this is why Jesus can rightly expect the same faith for all who follow him. Because he sets the expectation, he sets the standard, but then he comes to us and meets us right where we are and walks with us to where he wants us to be. And that, friends, should be exactly how we operate as a church, how we operate and treat one another. We, set, we, see, we see the standards here. We see what the faith is. We don't compromise this, we don't lower this, we don't say, well, you don't have to follow this. No, we say, this is the way. This is the faith. Let's walk together. We'll meet you where you are.
Because there's life like never before found here. So are you tracking with me? Does this make sense? The faith is contract humility, childlike dependence, and Christ's following abandon. We don't despair over our inability to reach those things in perfection. We believe that they are made possible by God alone. And so you and I follow God, trusting and believing that He wants to and is able to and is accomplishing these things in our faith just to simply be received on our part. This is the faith. And it's brought to you by our God. So would you, would you bow your heads? I'm just going to ask you a series of questions. And, and I'm just, I'm on the sidelines. You guys are on the field. And you and the Lord are working together on your own. I'm just on the sidelines kind of shouting out some coaching strategies. My hope for you is that you're engaging with the Lord right now and you're just in prayer in this position of of contrite hopefulness even. Because it's possible that you've just become super convicted. And you realize that the standards are high and what it looks like to have the faith. And yet you're, you're hopeful because what is impossible with you is possible with God. So will you, will you humble yourself before God in this faith? Will you humble yourself? Will you, will you kneel contritely before his throne? And have a disposition where you, you are eager to confess your sinfulness, your complacency, your pride, your lust, your idolatry. Because you know there's full forgiveness available in Christ. Will you depend on Christ for everything and receive everything as if it's the greatest gift that God's ever given you? Will you depend on God for everything that he seeks to accomplish in you and through you? And will you forsake your own strength? Will you forsake your own abilities and recognize that those are are just simply gifts from the Father's hand already? Will you ask him to show you every idol and give you the strength to cast them down in passionate pursuit of Christ for the far better treasure? I'm going to ask you guys right now, just before the Lord, saying, God, this is the faith that I want, and I can't do it. You must accomplish this in me. However that looks in your own prayer, would you be willing to go before the Lord with that? I'll give you a minute, and then I'll I'll pray for us. King Jesus, you are the Lord. You're the Lord of our faith. In fact, you are the Lord of the faith. I pray, God, that this would be a year of faith.
a year of refining it and purifying it. Of showing the world the standard that you've set. And I am so sorry for how we as the church, I myself, have so tainted the world's understanding of what you have declared as the faith. With my own sin and pride and complacency. Father, I ask that when the world asks the question, what is the Christian faith? Not only would our words be true, but would our lives also speak the message of what the faith is? Would you accomplish what we know is impossible by ourselves? Would you accomplish the faith in us? We want it and we receive it by faith. We're believing that you can create in us contrite humility, you can create in us childlike dependence, you can create in us Christ-following abandon. And you are already doing that now. Truly make us followers of you, Christ. And help us walk in the faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.